0: This season of Not Alone was made possible by Australia Post, proudly supporting Beyond Blue. Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains a first-hand account of bullying and sexual assault. If you or someone you know needs support, visit beyondblue.org.au, call our support service on 1300 22 or call 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell, and this is Not Alone. Incredible stories from everyday Australians talking about their mental health to help you with yours. This episode is all about numbness and disconnection. I don't feel sad or happy or angry. I just feel empty.
1: Usually what happens is I go on a
0: bender. I was drinking for the numbing effect. I feel disconnected. I'm really in a rut. Like I don't care anymore. And I don't know how to get myself out of it. Is there any way to fix the numbness? I feel like I want
1: to walk out of my life and never look back. I
0: feel like I've kept so much inside. All I can feel All is pain. I can feel All I can is feel is pain.
1: There's nothing much I really could have done at the time. Like, mm. And I've gone over those... Events over the years, a lot in my head, but um, it's, it's such a I don't know, corny thing to say or strange, but I think everything happens for a reason. And that's, I hate it. I used to hate hearing that mm. sort of saying as you grow up. and But yeah, those events have sort of changed the way I look at the world, at life.
0: James grew up in a tiny town on the northern New South Wales coast. His community was probably only 250 people strong, but strong it was.
1: You'd only lock your door if you went away, yeah, for like a week. But <laughs> if you went away for the weekend, you'd leave the house open and the neighbours would keep an eye on it. So it was a um, very supportive community, you know. Everyone looks out for each other. Like, my uncle lived two doors up from me, my auntie and uncle, lived across the road, um, and then all mum and dad's friends sort of, you know, migrated from Sydney in their early 20s and come to this small coastal town just to surf and make a life out of the city. So mm. because you knew everyone and they were either related or, like, best friends of your mum and, yeah, the community felt like an extended family almost, yeah.
0: So what kind of, introduced me to the young James, right? What kind of kid do you reckon you were like?
1: Yeah, like as a young kid, I was quite shy, like, mm. but once I warmed to people, that's when I sort of would come out of my shell, like, you know, like my nickname was and Martin. <laughs>
0: oh, okay, okay, there's a story there. <laughs> How did that happen?
1: Yeah, so I just used to, um, I had some bowel problems as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd fart a lot with certain foods, so I had to go on a diet. No, Yeah, really? to, to eliminate.
0: Oh, you're kidding, wow. Yeah. When did you first start
1: surfing? Oh wow, we well, would have been like four or five. I got a little foamy board. When I was about 10, that's when I had some mates that got, we all got into it around the same time. And from then till like I was, you know, 18, we lived at the beach <laughs> all day. Yeah, you just you come home sunburnt, eat some food, go back out in the <laughs> afternoon. And we got so many photos of when we were kids, like just. Just red, like
0: <laughs> sunburnt, and just like you look at him, and you go, "Wow, that's crazy." But what was your relationship like with the water? What What were you getting out of it when you went out surfing? The biggest thing—it's free to eh? me, mm. and there's no rules. You get out there; it's
1: almost like you're an artist. Eh? Mm. If you want to surf a certain way, you can. You can ride a different board to the next guy, and you can have as much fun as you as you want with
0: it. It's also like you have to surrender a bit to nature too, don't you? Like the surf's going to do what the surf's going to do, and it's about how you react to it as well. Yep. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, you're definitely vulnerable to a certain degree. Like you,
1: big waves can come, or you can get caught in a rip. Just little things like that, mm. and maybe that touches on that danger element or that thrill because you sort of, yeah, you're always you're alert. You're um, it draws all your energy in your senses to to participate but then at the same time you're off in your own little world like you can go for a surf and it, yeah the world stops <laughs> you're just out there having fun and you're a pretty social
0: kid when you're out at the beach
1: yeah we used to you could hear us before you'd see us because we'd be <laughs> hooting each other and giving each other crap if you fell off a wave or yeah and I guess that world in a small community especially that had adopted surfing is sort of its main pastime you, you sort of become accepted into a little subculture, like there's a, a hierarchy, you know, you've got the older guys who'll like pull you into line if you're, you know, getting a bit too cocky or, <laughs> you know, not not abiding to that little ethic code of ethics that exists out there. You know,
0: you know, pull your head in, mate, you can't have all the waves. James came from what he describes as a normal family where the only real issue were the regular sort of teenage arguments he'd have with his sister. But there was always food on the table, and your holidays, and the sense that he was loved and supported. Then, as he approached the end of high school, James turned his mind to work and his future. When you were a kid growing up, what did you want to be? I wanted to, to, to grow up,
1: leave school, do a trade, become... Chippy, like my dad, still play soccer for the local club, um, still surf, and raise a family in the same environment I was raising because it's so loving and safe, and and a lot of freedom just to, for kids to be kids and be safe. Yeah.
0: But as the end of Year 12 approached, James was presented with an opportunity to work in the maritime industry, with months spent on the water. Yeah,
1: like a life at sea. I thought, wow, you're on the ocean, travel, good coin, give it a bash.
0: When you first started working on the ship, when did you first realise that it, it wasn't quite all that it was going to be cracked up to be? I reckon the first day. The first day? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Jeez. Because I went from this world of little community where you're supported and loved. Yeah. And I wasn't a very street smart kid because I'd come from such a sheltered sort of environment. Then I went into this world that was the total opposite. You know, I was 18 and I looked 12, like probably weighed 50 kilos, skinny. Mm. So yeah, I was sort of like, I was amongst all these guys with tattoos and big drinkers, sort of like, um, you know, your your man's man as such, in that sense of the word. And, um, yeah, I just was in shock. I remember going, wow, this is going to be different, but I'll nut it out and see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. I was intimidated, bullied and threatened, which led to physical assault. Uh, sexual assault um, that weren't one-off experiences. They were, especially the, f- the physical assaults, they were daily experiences. Sexual assaults weren't daily but they they were common. And you are, um, you're in an environment where you can't escape. Like if I was working at Bunnings or Coles, you could just go, I'm not turning up, This mm-hmm. shit. <laughs> I'm out of here. Um, but when you uh, on the other side of the world, in a small ship, sharing a room the size of a you know normal bedroom in a house with twenty other guys, and you know most of those guys were okay, but there was a select few that got off on scaring the shit out of me with sexual threats, physical threats. When they come to fruition and it started becoming a reality, that's when you yeah you just lose. You lose your soul, eh? You become just numb. Yeah, you don't... You're just, you're just purely existing. You wake up, you go to work, you eat. You know, living in that constant vigilant state, like it, you're on alert, you're waiting for a, a tap on the shoulder or, a, you know, I'd get picked up by the throat, smashed against the wall and be told quite graphically what was going to happen to me in bed that night or... You know, in the end, you just live in this, you're just on edge. So even now just talking about it. Mm. You sort of, your body goes back to that hypervigilant state where you're ready to defend yourself. <laughs> the, the worst days, you wanted to kill yourself. <laughs> like,
0: yeah, um, That's as bluntly as you can put it. James didn't feel like he could tell anyone what was happening to him and he felt that no one else would care anyway. He was made to feel like this unskilled newbie while the men who were doing this to him were seen as assets to the ship. He didn't want to rock the boat and suffer the reprisals. In the end, James was on that ship for six months with his abusers before it returned home.
1: I could escape from the environment, which was the ship itself, and that gave me a lot of comfort. But you can't escape from your own head, eh, Mm. Like, that stuff stays with you. Yeah, I, I come home one day to my mum's house and just broke down, cried for a couple of hours. And she rang up a counsellor. I seen her for two sessions. She wrote a um, a letter to the ship and said, you know, he's in my opinion, uh, if he goes back to sea, he won't come back. He's suicidal. He's not in a good way. And he needs to stay ashore to get some treatment. And but I, I hadn't told her what was going on.
0: James hadn't told anyone what had happened. It was a secret that he would carry for 15 years. Looking back on it now, why yeah. do you reckon you weren't comfortable or you didn't think you could have told them what actually happened? The biggest thing that comes to mind straight Australia is just the
1: guilt and shame. Yeah, it's, it's just embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, how do you have that conversation with someone... Yeah. I felt responsible. <laughs> why, why do you reckon you felt responsible? Well, I used to say that I was just too sensitive. If I had been a bit bigger, a bit more street smart, um, that those things wouldn't have happened to me. And then you think to yourself, how did I let that happen? How did? Why didn't I do anything? Why did? Why didn't I stick up for myself? You manhoods question, and I wasn't even a man. I was just a kid, you know. Like you, you become confused. Everything you just become a mess.
0: In that time, immediately after getting off the ship, what was different about you and how you interacted with people? The, the biggest thing was I stopped surfing almost.
1: Right. I still surf, but maybe once every two or three weeks. I just lost enthusiasm. I didn't want to be around people either. Like, I hated lying to people. Like, hey, how you been, mate? And I wanted to cry out and go, like, I feel like shit. I can't cope. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm all this... But I, I, I couldn't say that. Hmm. Um, I went from being a really social kid, like involved in soccer, surfing, going out with friends, having a barbie, having a party, more often than not the life of the party. <laughs> I, <laughs> and I enjoyed that. you know. So I went to the total opposite end of that scale where you just lock myself in my room in my own house at my parents' place. I was scared someone was going to come in to my own bedroom in my own home that I lived in all my life.
0: As the years went by, James's mental health began to deteriorate even further. He often felt physically weak, like drained of energy, and was filled with this hurt and this anger that he aimed back on himself, really. Then he began to experience panic attacks.
1: The first big one, maybe like three years after, I was at a friend's wedding and I'm with people that I've grown up with all my life, safe environment heaps of love and I was at the bar and I just remember, I thought I was having a heart attack, my whole body just broke into a sweat, felt like everything was just caving in on me, like literally like the pub was going to just collapse on me and I just ran out back of the pub and hid under a tree for like two hours and just went what the hell was that and I loved, you know, sitting around a table with some mates and talking and I can't remember when it actually changed but all of a sudden I'd go into a pub there was all these triggers. might be a person that looks like someone from the ship or a noise or a song something just would set you off but I didn't know it at the time and I'd become really heightened, hypervigilant I I felt scared, I felt anxious, nervous so I'd down heaps of drinks to try and numb that. Mm Mm-hmm Then I'd go and hide in a poker room so I didn't have to talk to anyone. I'd find a corner where, you know, I could still be out with the boys as such, (laughs) but not. (laughs) I didn't even like playing the pokies. I didn't like drinking. (laughs) I was just like, this is an out, I can just hide here. And then I found sort of comfort in that.
0: You described a few times this term of being hypervigilant. What does that actually feel like? Well, f- for starters, like, I notice that my heart beats. I can feel
1: it. Um, sometimes my vision gets a bit blurry. Yeah, you can feel your muscles really tight and tense mm. and you breathe shorter. And you don't think straight. You don't um, process things as you would when you're not sort of anxious or alert. After a while, then the other side of that happens where you become drained. Mm. You know, you've used up so much energy sort of scanning the room or looking for threats, I don't know, and you just you just can't function. <laughs> mm.
0: James continued to drink, take drugs and gamble until it really all just became a routine. He became an island unto himself, losing any care he had for his own well-being or really anything else. He would endanger his own life through reckless behaviours, hoping that he might be able to make his own death look like an accident.
1: You know... My mum and dad don't have to deal with that stigma or, you know, he's just a young guy who pushed the boundaries, you know, what a shame.
0: That big community of people that was around you growing up, that yep. that really lovely community, did you at any point feel like you could lean on them in this moment when you'd become this island? No. Nah. Why?
1: I guess when you're in that frame of mind, when you're depressed, you're suicidal, you're dealing with panic attacks and all that fear of anxiety, you you see the world differently and you think, I don't deserve love, I don't deserve support, I'm a piece of shit, I don't deserve anything. And it becomes acceptable in your own brain to just isolate. That's, that you,
0: that's your friend. Years passed... And James would often move around the country, sometimes further north along the beach or out west to a job in the mines, always carrying with him the weight of his abuse. He was treading water, but growing tired. Then, in 2008, he suffered a nasty knee injury and found himself in Ginderbine, where he could access a decent specialist. He was barely in contact with his family, but they had agreed to finance the treatment.
1: Yeah, I just... I was in a pretty bad place, because I was... I didn't have much to do. And the only little thing I looked forward to in the, in the week was going to the pub to play poker. Mm-hmm. It sort of would get me social and And I'd just see this just this beautiful smiling girl who just, she'd walk in, everyone, hey Lisa, how you going? And she knew everyone and everyone loved her and And she'd always sit behind me and just ask, oh, how do you play poker? What did you do there? <laughs> we just warmed to each other straight away. But she warmed to everyone and... I was just like, "Wow, this is cool," and I sort of look forward to seeing her each week, just for that feeling of, "Wow, this person's really positive and happy and vibrant." And but you know, I had, I've got no game, <laughs> you know what I mean? I've got, I've got nothing like. That. And throw in the bag when you're depressed, like the last thing you, for me anyway was to like, "Hey, do you want to catch up?" Or it just wasn't going to work. I had no confidence.
0: And so, with his sense of self-worth at this all-time low, the best James could do was to keep in touch with Lisa via Facebook as he moved away from the area. He continued to bounce around the place from job to job, never really forming any attachments, seldom holding on to his income longer than it took to visit a bottle shop and a pokies room. And then, racked with shame, not just from the abuse, but also from his life ever since, he just stopped calling his family.
1: You know, I wouldn't turn up to Christmas get-togethers, family birthdays. You know, my nan was dying of cancer, and I rarely seen her. And that to this day just, it just rips me apart, eh? You know, I was really close to my grandparents, and I, I was so caught up in that world, eh, of just negativity. Like, and I was embarrassed that they'd see me. I'd turn up, and you know, I'd have shitty clothes on. I'd be you know, hadn't eaten, well, half the time I couldn't even get there, Mark, because I didn't have the money. I'd, mm. I'd blown it on grog and gambling or
0: drugs. Then James found himself without a place to live and no plan or the money to organise a new one.
1: I was like, oh, what do I do? I thought, oh, I'll just crash in my car for a couple of weeks and, and then, yeah, that turned into months. Next thing you know, you living in your car, then I lost my car there for a couple of weeks. You couch surf a bit. You know, I had a couple of nights where I just slept at the beach on the sand. It wasn't part of the plan as such. Yeah, between the beach and my car, that was my home for probably six to 12
0: months. It's quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about yourself in that period? That, That was
1: the lowest of the low. Yeah. When... Because I had no food, and as soon as my money had come in, I'd go to the pub, get drunk, gamble it all. Mm. And it got to the point where it was like I'd have no food for the next two weeks, so on that payday I'd go and buy some tuna, heaps of cans of dollar tuna, and just stash it in the car so I wouldn't be hungry. Yeah, that was just lonely, hey, like being hungry, (laughs) watching people eat, and it sends you crazy when you don't eat, you know. Mm. For, For me it does, like that hangry thing or whatever it is, like, <laughs> multiply that by 100. So I was living off a, a peach tree that we had down the road on this property I was living on, and I lived off peaches for two weeks, and they're the most beautiful peaches you've <laughs> ever seen. I used to have them in so many different ways, it wasn't funny. And um, it, it was the first time I had a plan. Eh? A plan for...? for suicide. Right. And it was scary because I wasn't drunk, I wasn't under the influence of anything it was the first time I specifically sort of had that intention. And I rang up this number for mental health support and I went, I need help eh? I'm not going to get through the night. I was in a regional area and they said listen we can't send no one out Mm. Um, can you get to the local hospital? And I jumped in the car, it was about a 45 minute drive it was a very lonely 45 minutes and I seen a doctor, there was no mental health professional on but the doctor was amazing, he just went right well, we don't have even have a mental health unit here that's open yeah, right. <laughs> but we've got a hospital bed I had a really good night's sleep yeah woke up the next morning and a mental health nurse come and see me uh, it wasn't even my intention to Talk about what had happened, but over the course of a couple of hours, um
0: yeah, it all just come out. Is that the first time you'd verbalised it? Yeah. Everything. Everything. James was diagnosed with PTSD. Something he identifies with and actually finds comforting. He spent some time in the mental health unit at the hospital, started a bit of therapy, went on to medication, but it didn't last long. Soon he was adrift again, unable to deal with what he'd unpacked, and falling back into his old habits.:
1: Yeah, that's when I hit another sort of you know, rock bottom, as they call it, and I ended up at a homeless outreach team on the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm and they identified pretty quickly that the drinking gambling drugs was preventing me from healing or yeah you know so they sent me a referral to a rehab mm-hmm. and um yeah a couple of weeks later i i turned up there that was the beginning of my new life eh It was the first time, Mark, that I'd heard other people describe their addictions, their mental health experiences, like people would say, I feel like this, I do this to cope. or, And for years I just thought I was the only one that was experiencing those negative thoughts or those critical thinking. Um, Yeah, and to hear someone else speak of their experiences that pretty much match yours, it was... Eye opening, you go, Wow, that's I'm not alone. <laughs> as corny <laughs> as that sounds, you're just like, Wow, I'm not alone. There's so many people out here who have been through similar situations, felt the same way, acted the same way. I'm not a freak, I'm not alone. And which, and I'd felt so disconnected and alone for so many years. And yeah, all of a sudden I was in an environment that was I felt connected, I felt familiar, I felt a sense of. For the first time, community, eh, again.
0: Mm. I felt a part of something. In rehab, James realised the extent his drinking and gambling had fed every negative aspect of his life. He understood that he had to change or he would never be able to heal and grow. And so he did change. And because I'd stopped
1: drinking, gambling, I was like, wow, I had all these new emotions come up mm. that I hadn't felt for years, like hope faith, connection. I started calling my mum and dad. I started loving things again. Like, I hadn't felt that since I was 18. And I'm like, wow, this is all because, if this is all because I've just stopped drinking and gambling, okay, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to sign up for this for the long term.
0: When came the moment that you did finally tell your parents what actually happened?
1: In rehab, eh, Mark?
0: Yeah. Would have been like...
1: Two or three months into it, I'd sort of been completely clean and that's when they start to really work on why you drink, why you take drugs or gamble and, yeah, I just remember bringing mum and dad up and, yeah, I think for them it was a relief as much as it was a a sense of, um like, validation for the past 15, 20 years, whatever it was, and um, they could get some comfort as well to go. Uh, I, I guess they wouldn't feel responsible because they would have had sleepless nights and, yeah, it would have been a very empowering moment for them to go, wow, cool, he's, he's opened up and, you know, because they'd tried to support me, fix me, and I think they got a lot of comfort out of knowing that for whatever reason I've instigated
0: that. Soon, James started to notice that his feelings of guilt and shame that had been so prominent for the past 15 years were beginning to fade. So he kept up with therapy, continued to work on getting better, and to help him with this, James took up yoga and learnt to spot his triggers. With the therapy I've done, I go cool. I just
1: seen, heard, or felt this, and I can go right. I I can process it, move through it, and nine times out of ten, it won't change my day. Hmm. I move on, and you know. But you still have that. It's still in you Hmm. to have that response or that feeling, but. You have the tools and the um, knowledge of what's happening, and you can repair it pretty quickly if you identify it and go, Cool, mm. that's what's happening. Sweet.
0: So, throughout the years, you, you still had some sort of sporadic contact with Lisa. Yep. When did you decide to sort of reinitialize that friendship? Facebook message for her birthday.
1: (laughs) Classic. Classic, yeah.
0: And he says he has no game. Come (laughs) on, mate.
1: (laughs) And it it was crazy too because like I sent her just a message saying happy birthday and I do it every year. That's sort of how we kept in touch. And um, she wrote back, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm in Brizzy. She's like, oh, I was in Brizzy last week. Would have been good to catch up. And I said, oh, well, next time you're over, like, we'll catch up. And I wasn't even thinking anything romantic. Hmm. I just remembered, like she was someone who was fun and happy, and I was like, "Wow, well, I'd love to just hang out with her." And um, yeah, we 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 talked for maybe three months on the phone because she was in Perth at the time in the mines, and, and we just talked for hours. You could just feel it, eh? There was something there that, you like, I'd never felt like that. Yeah, we just had to meet up. It's like let's hang out. And when I picked her up from the airport, I seen, I hadn't seen her for maybe you know five or ten years. I almost forgot what she looked like, and (laughs) and I seen her come down the escalator, and I was like, "Holy moly, what a stunner!" Like, (laughs) so uh, then I've never had that feeling. I just said, "I'm going to marry her," eh?" (laughs) and it wasn't like my intention. Yeah, it wasn't like I went, "I'm going to, I've got to marry her." It was like something outside
0: of me Mm. just went, "Here she is. This is the girl you're going to marry." Once they were together in person, they became (laughs) inseparable. Then after four weeks together, James felt comfortable enough, safe enough, that he told Lisa all that had happened to him, on the ship and since. It probably strengthened our relationship. Why do you think? I guess because she
1: maybe could appreciate where I was. Mm -hmm. Like, we met just after I graduated from rehab and... On the surface, it would have just looked like, oh, Jamie had a problem with alcohol or Mm. gambling, whatever. But once she knew that there was something deeper going on, yeah, it was an opportunity for for me to be sensitive, I guess, and a bit vulnerable. And, and, you know, looking back on it, I should have probably eased her into it. Or I was in a bit of shock when I told her. I was like, well, I shouldn't have just said that whole little story. But she wanted to give me a big hug. We pulled over and had a hug and... She was crying and the fact that she's got that knowledge of me, it, it only makes her relationship stronger.
0: Mm. And then, uh, spoiler alert, in February, what happened? Got married on <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> you did? Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's
1: really How was that day? Best day of my life. Best, the funnest day, the happiest day. The uh, just, There was only... 20 of us there, just immediate family. Mm. We're just going to get married on the beach. We're mm. like, oh, shit, the forecast says rain. We better book somewhere. There's no accommodation left because we organised the wedding four days out. And um, <laughs> got this beautiful old dairy farm that had accommodation on it. The sun parted at about 10 o'clock in the morning. We just had this beautiful day with our closest family. Eh? and it was just. I, I still just look at the videos on my phone and the photos. I never thought I'd be that person. It was like, oh, look at the wedding. Yeah, it's a good reminder.
0: When you first came back from the ship, you talked about feeling really isolated. Like, you, you'd grown up in this community where you felt like you always really belonged, but there was a period of time where you sort of retreated into yourself. Yep. How different is that now? <laughs> it's like
1: 100% different because... I don't lock myself in my room. Mm-hmm. I'm not disconnected anymore. Yeah, you you have hope, you have faith, you have love, and it's a feeling that you get. It's not um, manufactured, mm. you know, or bought. It's something that you you live and you see and you feel, and and it keeps giving. eh? like just to know that you could come out of it. I don't think I'd change anything. Looking back on it, like obviously you, you don't want to experience all those. Things, but the appreciation I've got for life and for people, like it's helped me empathize more with other people, like especially seeing someone homeless on the street or an addict. It gives you a greater appreciation for humanity and for people, and it's been a blessing. <laughs> in, a, in a weird way, it's, it's helped. I would never have met Lisa, I would never have. It, oh, I didn't think you could feel this good in life, eh, Emma. Honestly, I didn't think that that you can come back
0: from stuff like that. James now lives close to the ocean again. And thanks to Lisa wanting to learn how to ride a barrel, he's surfing again too.
1: I hadn't surfed for a long time and then her keenness and enthusiasm in the ocean just sparked something in me again and I'd like, you never come in from a surf feeling like shit. You, you always come out just buzzing, even if you've had the worst surf ever. You just. I think I enjoyed surfing so much because, you know, it's a really immediate form of mindfulness or meditation without knowing it. You, all your senses are buzzing. You, even if I hadn't even had a surf, you just go for a swim. And something happens where you just. Oh, wow, I feel different. <laughs> And that's a good feeling, you know.
0: Listening to James, it's clear that recovery from trauma, it can be a long and winding road. And so to get just an understanding of the clinical side of what is clearly a very complicated issue, I had a chat to Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blaschke. Uh, Dr. Grant Blasky, welcome back. Thanks, Mark. Listening to James's story, that I mean, one of the biggest, I guess, themes of it is how much James t- tried to numb that trauma with alcohol, with drugs, with gambling. And I think that's, you know, something a lot of us will be familiar with. I'm curious, though, about what's going on a little bit under the hood. Like, what is it that alcohol, drugs, gambling, what is it that they are doing to help sate or, or manage that
2: underlying trauma that, that James was processing? it's very common and what I see in my clinic is very often a lot of people with mental health issues don't go and get professional help. They try and self-manage it with alcohol, drugs or gambling or other what we call maladaptive approaches. So they might get a little bit of temporary relief because they're feeling awful. But the truth is that over time, these approaches compound the problem. They make it worse. Understandable, but if you're using alcohol to manage your stress and anxiety, it's not a good long-term solution. It tends to cause more problems than it solves.
0: Talk therapy obviously had a huge set of benefits for James, not just with a psychologist, but in a sort of a group setting as well. It kind of almost gets to the heart of this series. Why is hearing the experience of someone else so helpful, do you think?
2: Well, you're right, isn't it? It's one of those classic you're not alone moments where we say, you know, someone who's been through this absolutely horrible time that James has been through, there's a part of him that just feels like I'm the only person in the world that's ever experienced anything like that. I'm the only one who's had this horrible thing, who's having all these um, sad and, you know, nihilistic feelings about things. And once they get in a group and other people start speaking up, it really is just sort of a game changer for them. They go, oh my gosh, lots of people are dealing with this. So it's a mixture of them telling their story and hearing the stories of others that really contributes to their healing.
0: Just on a purely practical level, is there specific help and support out there for people battling alcohol and drug addiction
2: Absolutely. So drug and alcohol, common problem. GPs, good place to start. They know the local services. If you want to jump on the phone or online, Turning Point, have some wonderful uh, services as well. More serious alcohol and drug problems. Sometimes people link in with what we call inpatient or day outpatient programs to help them get through their addiction. So there's a lot of help out there. And, and I think the hardest thing is for people to put up their hands initially. Uh, but I've certainly mm-hmm. seen with my patients a lot of hope about people that get on top of addiction problems. And so it's well worth engaging, getting the right help.
0: Dr. Grant Blaschke, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me again.
2: Great to chat, Mark.
0: I want to thank James for sharing his incredible story and experiences with me. I also just want to acknowledge the courage it's taken. And the same has to be said for all of our contributors in this season of Not Alone. Never let it be said that those seeking help and support for their emotional well-being are weak or that they have failed or that they have been unable to cope. There is no more courageous person than the one who will put up their hand and admit that they need help. I want you to know from all of us at Beyond Blue and me personally, you are seen and you are not alone. You can join the conversation and share your story at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. If you know anyone or if you yourself need support, visit our website or call support service on 1300 22 46 36. Put some additional info in the show notes. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast hosted by me, Mark Fennell. Produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton and Sarah Alexander. It was recorded by Ryan De Silva with sound design and mixing by Wayne Newen. This podcast was produced on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung, Gadigal and Dja Dja country. And we pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.